afternoon. This is Alicia Bales. I'm excited to be in the studio for a special public affairs show this afternoon. We'll be speaking with environmental attorney Sharon Duggan. And Sharon is on the line with us. Hey, Sharon. Good afternoon. Thank you for being here. It's such a treat to get to spend the hour with you. Um, Sharon Duggan is an environmental attorney here in Northern California. If you don't already know Sharon's name, you've definitely heard about her work. For more than three decades, she was the staff attorney for the Environmental Protection Information Center, or EPIC, and she fought some of the most impactful and successful lawsuits to protect the ancient forests on the North Coast, including the remaining redwoods in what is now the Sinkion Wilderness State Park and Headwaters Forest, among many other places threatened by industrial logging. She's worked uncompromisingly to draw attention to the inadequacies of state government agencies, particularly the California Department of Forestry, to safeguard our watersheds from the cumulative effects of commercial harvesting. Uh, in the bad old days of the 1990s and now, as timber extraction in Mendocino and Humboldt is reaching similar devastating levels. She's one of the co-founders of Our Children's Trust, a group supporting young people to take action against climate change. She's also on the board of Why Forests Matter, which is a group calling for urgent changes to the way forestry laws are enforced in California. And we're going to talk about her work with Why Forests Matter, including their call for a structural divorce between forestry and firefighting sides of CAL FIRE. That's a pretty long introduction, Sharon, but I'm just so excited (laughs) to have you here. Thank you so much. Can we just start by going back a bit? to talk about your early days, the the early days of your work and your earliest cases like Epic versus Johnson, because there are so many chapters to this story uh, that lead you to the call for the Cal Fire divorce. And you've tried so many ways, so many times to get the Department of Forestry to enforce the Forest Practices Act. And I, I want people to have a sense of that history before we talk about today so they can understand, you know, you're not coming out of nowhere. This isn't just a, a new idea. This is something that you've been uh, working the, the The divorce idea comes out of almost four decades of trying to get them to do the right thing. Sure. Um, well, my, you know, my first case really as, as a relatively brand new lawyer uh, was the Epic versus Johnson case. And that involved a 75 acre old growth um, uh, magnificent keystone, as the court ultimately referred to it, uh, located in the Sinkion, um, just above the Sinkion Wilderness State Park. And the issue there was fundamental. There were a few issues. One was um, fundamentally the question of cumulative effect, which is the idea that if you're going to do something in one place, are there things going on around it that you've done or others have done that might um, increase or, ex- or um, exacerbate whatever might be the effect, the cumulative effect of past, present, and future projects. And in this case, it was Georgia Pacific who had logged so many, uh, so much of the area around this particular grove um, that there was a real question about, you know, whether um, what the timber harvest plan was suggesting would happen was an adequate analysis or what more needed to be considered. And in, and in fact, the court determined that, uh, yes, indeed, the cumulative effects of past, present, and proposed future logging had to had to be considered. And, and there were other issues there, too, most importantly, the archaeological issues and, and things like that. But the reason I mentioned the cumulative effects in particular is because in that case, the state took the position that it did not have to evaluate cumulative impacts because the forest practice review process had been given a functional equivalent determination by the legislature. In other words, the THP, the Timber Harvest Plan, was considered the functional equivalent of an environmental impact report under the California Environmental Quality Act, and therefore it could be exempt. And as was established in EPIC and had to be relitigated many times after EPIC, um, the court disagreed with that and said, you have a slim and narrow exemption from the California Environmental Quality Act, and other than that narrow exception, you must comply. And so the cumulative impacts requirement definitely applies to the timber harvest plan i think we probably went maybe three or four years before we then had to you know we filed another lawsuit the native salmon case for the purposes of determining you know the failure of the agency to require the cumulative impacts analysis that the court had decided um in the epic case and so 
and I, I don't, I mean, I have my dates exactly correct, but I think it was probably three or four years. So all during that period of time, you know, there was an effort to try to get Cal Fire to evaluate cumulative impacts, and they just kept kicking the can down the road and taking the position they didn't have to, and and carrying the voice of the industry in doing so. And so ultimately, we had to file a case just on the specific controversy of whether or not they needed to have rules in place to evaluate cumulative impacts. And again, you know, we were successful in achieving that outcome, and they adopted cumulative impacts rules, which, you know, from some perspective, including mine, <laughs> they weren't as strong as we would have liked them, most particularly because they didn't set standards. They they really kind of just set forth a whole palette of, of uh, um, pieces of information that could be provided, but everything was really left up to the plan mm-hmm. submitter. So... Well, let me ask and, about Epic versus sure. Johnson was in the early 80s, right? We're talking about like almost, well, a very long time yeah. ago. I think we filed it in 83, and I think the decision was in 85. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then the mm-hmm. Native Salmon case was probably in the late 80s? No, I, yeah, I think it's more like 1990, 91, something like that. You know, we had to go to the Court of Appeal because they argue that we had no right to be there, and the court said they do have a right to be there. And then we got you know, the Board of Forestry and the department uh, to agree that they were going to adopt some rules. So, And it might be so, shocking to for people who, I mean, this seems like a no-brainer that if you're going to affect uh, a forest ecosystem, that you should look at the cumulative effects of what's happened before and what's happened after. But uh, when you're talking about cumulative effects, what what is that? Well, I think, you know, a a good example is uh, when we've seen this a lot in watersheds. You know, if you've logged upstream and then you're going to log downstream or you log downstream and you're going to log upstream, what's going to be the relationship of those logging operations on that watershed, on the canopy, on the, the, the habitat and the ecosystem for, you know, the species that may depend upon the water? Not to mention, let's just talk basics, the water supply, the water quantity, and then let's talk about all the species that depend upon that, and particularly in the North Coast where we have salmonids and anadromous salmonids that are very dependent upon our stream systems. And so that's, that's just one, uh, one example. Another example, of course, is that if you, if you cut, you know, if you clear cut here and you clear cut there and you clear cut here, at some point have you so impacted a particular um, area of forest that you're really you're, you're um, undermining the capacity for that forest, its soils, to recover in a in a meaningful way to continue to produce healthy forests, you know, healthy and and good quality uh, lumber. And all this so, time, so Epic versus Johnson was against the California Department of Forestry. Yes, yes, it was against Cal Fire in those days. It was called CDF. Uh, I know that in the Jackson State controversy, I think I think they're now referring to it as the as the Forestry Department or something, which I think is a much more apt um, description as opposed to the Cal Fire, because it that really doesn't capture what what the forest um, management side of the agency does. So right, so let's go into that. So so we have Cal Fire which used to be called the California Department of Forestry, but now is called CAL FIRE, but they still do the same thing that same, they're still responsible for the same thing that they were before, which is to um, enforce forestry laws and approve timber harvesting plans on private land in the state, right? Right. So, I mean, the Department of Forestry has been around for a long time. You know, I, I think uh, I'm going to say maybe the 40s, at least I'm going to go back that far since the 1940s. And, you know, fundamentally, their their job has been it was to um, regulate and manage how or govern I should say govern the management of logging operations on private lands and 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 there was a state fire marshal who was kind of entirely separate and and those two merged at some point in in the historical past where you had fire prevention fire protection and resource management all in one agency and it was and it's always been called its full name is the california department of forestry and fire protection it's just that um and i you know i'm not clear on exactly when this happened but i think it was in the 90s sometime they decided to no longer refer to themselves as cdf 
which was the California Department of Forestry, as that was what the acronym stood for, and instead to become CAL FIRE. And they changed their uniforms so they looked more, you know, I don't know, um, police-oriented. Yeah. Fire, yeah, right. And But the other significant change that has happened over the course, certainly in the 21st century, is that whereas at one point in time the resource management was, you know, kind of a vibrant entity that was, you know, doing things and out in the woods, now the resource management side of the agency is a, it, I mean, it's like an afterthought. It's a de minimum. I think it has less than 10% of the budget of the agency because all the money is going to the fire site. Right, and we're, like every money. fire season, we are so grateful that they're out there fighting these fires that are roaring through people's communities. Um, currently, now they're on the front lines of dozens of fires, and so and that's the side that w- that we think about uh, when we think about Cal Fire at this point. It's like all of these firefighters protecting us from wildfire. But, and you know, and and here's the thing: there, I think it's pretty well accepted around the country that. The Cal Fire is one of the best, if not the best, fire agency, certainly in the United States, and probably rises above many around the world. Um, the, the challenge that we've, we have, and we've had now for many years, is that the forest resource management side of the agency is quite the opposite. It has failed in its leadership and governance to manage our private forest lands. They are supposed to be managed in a way in which high quality wood product is, is provided. And that means healthy. That means you have to have big trees. You have to have healthy forests in a manner which protects all the natural resources as, and the economy. But it's not like the economy gets to have a special hierarchy in all of this. And it's to be managed for this and future generations. And if ever there was a time where we needed to own that mission that has been in effect since 1973, it is now. And what you're talking about is our famous Forest Practices Act, right? Which is supposedly the strongest forestry laws in the country. Yes. I, I, you know, everyone will say, oh, we, we're the most regulated state. Um, and, you know, if you go online and you get their book, indeed, it's 400 and some pages. It's full of all sorts of regulations. Um, and if you look at all of those, and this is why there's been litigation over the years in one fashion or another for, on many different kinds of issues, what you'll see is this. It's a checklist. And the industry or private landowners all of them, they get to fill out the boxes. And as computer and internet and, you know, that kind of media has become more available, they've created um, statements to make that cover their answer for those boxes. But in any given THP, there is always an opportunity for them to step aside and say, I want to do it differently. And the historical record is that consistently the Department of Forestry approves the plan that's submitted by the uh, plan submitter. And, and you know, we're largely talking about industrial forest lands because those are the big guns. Those are the ones that have the land. They're the ones that have the most trees. Um, and so, for example, just by way of an example, which is one of the reasons why Richard Wilson and I penned the divorce article. Um, the Forest Practice Act says you're supposed to have maximum sustained production of high-quality wood products. And as I've said, you can't have that and protect resources if you don't have healthy forests. What we have seen, what we are seeing now is the same thing we saw in the early 1990s in Mendocino County, and that is forests have been cut down to the bare minimum. They're now taking out trees that are 18, 20, 22 inches in diameter. They're not taking out healthy trees. They're not having trees grow to their ecological maturity, to their culmination of mean annual increment, to the age that will provide that high-quality wood product. They're, they're cutting trees at smaller and smaller diameters. And what that means is that our forests are vulnerable. We, our forests are vulnerable not only to wildfire, 
you know, they're vulnerable to dryness. They're vulnerable to increased temperatures because they don't have the kind of canopies. They don't kind of have the kind of health that is necessary. And once, as that continues, and as you see these rotations for trees that are only 30 years old or 40 years old, what's happening is you're taking out the viability of those forests to do what they are best at doing, which is protecting our planet and protecting our um, atmosphere for this and future generations. Right. We talk about um, saving human beings going out and saving the trees, right? And all of our environmental groups, we're, we're out there to save the forest, save the trees. But in actuality, it's going to be the trees that are going to save us uh, from this man-made climate crisis that we are hurtling toward. I want to just mention my name's Alicia Bales, and I am on the line with Sharon Duggan, who's an environmental attorney here in Northern California. She's been working to protect our forests through litigation, um, amazing lawsuits for almost 40 years. Um, and now she's involved in a group called Why Forests Matter, who is calling for the structural divorce between the forestry and firefighting sites of Cal Fire in order to more effectively protect our forests. Um, Sharon, I'd love to talk a little bit about how you met Richard Wilson, who is the <laughs> former head of Cal Fire CDF and and created why forests matter with him which is ultimately calling for this cal fire divorce i actually first met richard wilson when we had a lawsuit on behalf of the redwood coast watersheds alliance back in the early 1990s and the issue there was the failure of the board of forestry to have adopt regulations that would have implemented the provision i just spoke about in other words that sustainability provision and so i took richard's deposition um and that I don't remember exactly when that was, but it was like 1990, 91, somewhere in there. Um, and it, it's not like Richard and I, you know, necessarily stayed in touch. I mean, our paths crossed certainly because of the the um, uh, Mendocino County rules effort that was in, embarked upon um, because of, you know, colleagues we knew like Hans Burkhart um, and who was a you know, remarkable person in the forestry world and, and left us too soon. Um, and so that's how I, that's how I met Richard. And, you know, basically we, by suing him, <laughs> uh, essentially. Yeah. And so we've stayed, you know, we've stayed in touch over the years in one manner or another. And, um, and there have been times when, uh, because of Pacific lumber and what happened with Maxam, um, you know, I kind of was able to um, reintroduce myself to Richard in a different way when he was involved in the Keytam case against um, Palco and Maxam. Um, and so that's that's how I met. And when he started the Why Force Matter organization, you know, I, I said I would be um, most willing to work with him because I think that, you know, his mess the message is really very, very simple, which is that, you know, we need to take care of our forests. We, we have not had the leadership that we have, that our Forest Practice Act requires. Um, politics, for the most part, regardless of party, you know, Republican or Democrat, has controlled. And, and the agency now, you know, it, it's, it's, um, it's impotent. It's impotent when it comes forest resource management and i'm sure that there are those out there who could be offended by my saying that but this is this is the reality it's like we've wanted to ignore climate change for you know decades and the same can be said for what has happened with the governance of our forest regulatory scheme for on private lands in california we just want to ignore that by letting um the industry do what it wants and take the gold out. Um, the gold rush has been huge for them. And, um, and we saw that in the most blatant ways with Maxam. Uh, we saw it with Georgia Pacific. We saw it with Louisiana Pacific. Those are all companies that came in and took the gold and then left. Um, and now we have these economies and communities that suffer and we don't have healthy forests. And, and until we get real leadership, which seems to not exist in Sacramento. It just doesn't. Um, you know, it, it, we, we are really, we're losing our forests. And 
I, I, you know, I looked for that statement that was in the Jackson State THP. I couldn't find it. You may know it. But there was a statement by CAL FIRE in its THP that was, I think, submitted in 2020, essentially saying that climate change was, you know, still a subject of controversy and that it, was, it hadn't been established, it hadn't been proved, which was something they undoubtedly lifted right from an industry THP. Um, I know that John O'Brien, uh, I think it's John O'Brien, I know he quoted it in his letter. Um, but, but there you have it, you know, we're out there... Um, doing the drama and and god knows it's horrible what's happening with the wildfires right now but when you hear the the director of the department of forestry act like this is something that was just you know unexpected unknown worse than they've ever seen given the manner in which they conduct their affairs they should be ashamed of themselves i wonder for people who um i mean you have spent decades right in the thick of it, like doing everything possible to get CDF to enforce the Forest Practices Act, suing on timber harvest plants, suing on cumulative effects, suing on um, endangered species protections, and, and just every possible way that you can po- get the law to protect these forests. And you have found time after time that even with the, the best forestry laws on the books, as we've said, um, they still go ahead and cut every tree in the forest as you, as you described the industry does what they want i wonder if you can explain for people who aren't so close to it what are the power dynamics and i've asked this question a, a lot of times but is cal fire the forestry side is this a captured agency does the industry essentially guard itself guard the hen house um i guess there's two ways that i would that i would answer i mean i think yes in simple terms, the answer to your question is that the industry is in the catbird seat. I mean, let's look at what happens with the Board of Forestry. SPI essentially has a permanent position on the Board of Forestry. SPI is the largest industrial landowner in the state of California, and it's the largest industrial timberland owner in the state of California, and it prefers clear cuts, Okay. And that's, that's Sierra Pacific and, and Red. Sierra Pacific Industries and Red Emerson. And Red yeah, Emerson. it's a privately held. And they have many, many different um, subsidiaries or whatever at this point w- within their bandwidth. Um, so I think that that is true. And, I th- and, and if you look back historically, you see that there's kind of this revolving door between um, industry foresters who work for the industry who then go to work for Cal Fire, who then go back to work for the industry. So there's a very um, symbiotic relationship, if you will, between these. And how it is that these agency foresters are unable or unwilling to um, have an independent stance and, and implement the Forest Practice Act based upon its fundamental intent and mission I don't know the answer to that. I, I've often wondered how is it that the timber industry has so much influence in Sacramento? I mean, we know that that these natural resource extractors they wield a lot of power, and even though they are now a very you know slim part of our budget and our I mean our economy in California, they still they still wield that power, and they do that whether it's Jerry Brown or Arnold Schwarzenegger or Gavin Newsom doesn't matter. Um, it, it, it's it, there's a, there's a lack of of understanding. You know that Byron shares and the Tom Haydens are no longer in the legislature. You know we don't have advocates in the legislature who even understand forestry and understand now the critical um, element or, or uh, value that these forests have particularly in terms of the climate crisis. Um, I mean, we've really underestimated the vulnerability of our forests, and now it's coming home to roost. And that's not to say that all of those other issues, the fact that it's federal land, that they let, you know, that they haven't managed a certain way, or that people are living within that um, rural-urban interface, all those different kind of factors that have led to the incredible disasters that are happening, those are all true. But we're not looking at forest management. It's just 
it, it it's like saying, you know, uh, we have a great car, but we don't have a steering wheel. I mean, I don't know, something really, we don't have the battery, you know, something that really is the beginning of it. And, and if we don't do something really radical at this point and really stand up and implement the kind of provisions that we can do under the existing law, um, we'll lose one of the most important resources of the state of California, at least in the long term. We will. Mm -hmm. And one of the best chances, the best hopes we have for absorbing enough carbon to get us through this this climate crisis that we are facing. Um, Okay, so your proposal with Richard Wilson and Why Forests Matter is a CAL FIRE divorce. And what you're saying is that CAL FIRE's forestry side needs to be split off from the firefighting side. And um, what the name of your article is, the case for establishing an independent forest and resource management agency to secure healthy forests in California. So let listeners know what this vision is and why it's better than what's happening now. The vision is to have an agency that is solely dedicated to forest resource management to re- to give us those healthy forests that that you know I think rightfully so was envisioned in the 1973 Forest Practice Act um, to allow for those healthy trees and healthy forests that will protect resources and provide high quality wood product. That's the vision. And the reason we need to do that at this point is because we now are facing the reality of our past conduct. And that is, is that we have wildfire seasons that are, you know, six, eight months of every year that those wildfires are more intense, all of which means that there needs to be a very singular focus on the wildfire. And we seem to have gotten, we seem to have the, the capacity to do that in terms of our personnel, in terms of our um, equipment, and certainly in terms of our, our uh, financial resources, okay? What we haven't done is we haven't done the same for the resource management. And there is a relationship between the two because, of course, if you don't have good forest resource management, you expose, you have a, a wildfire risk. No question about that. Um, and we understand that. But if we don't deal with those, that initial management and make sure that we can guarantee these forests and, and turn around this system that just allows anything to happen based upon the owner's desire, um, we will lose our force and we will just increase that fire risk among other things. And so it's not perfect. Absolutely not. But somehow there has to be a way to require this dedication and this commitment. It has to be made and it hasn't been made. Well, how would it work if, um, if there was a, uh, an independent forest and resource management agency that replaces or that, that, CDF, the forestry side of Cal Fire, morphs into, um, wouldn't it still, I mean, my question about it is, we know that Cal Fire, the forestry side, CDF, it's hard to even know what to, what to call them because we talk about them so much as a, a firefighting agency, but the, the forestry division, we know that it's so heavily influenced by t- the timber industry. I, I wonder if the timber industry wouldn't just migrate over to the new agency and, and capture it as well. What kind of safeguards uh, would well, need to be put in place? Yeah. I, I mean, I, and this is where, you know, and I, I mean, I certainly try to make sure that we put that in the article. That's why I think we have to consider this a question of governance. Okay. This is about governance and governance requires leadership. It doesn't require politics. It's about, it's about how do you govern in a way that's for the common good. That's what we're really talking about here. Um, and you can do that and take care of those private interests. You know, we do it all the time in many different ways. Um, I mean, for heaven's sakes, you know, you regulate um, industries that, that pollute the air and you, you rein them in, but you, they're still able to function because that's what we need for the common good. And that's, that's what's missing. And so any, I mean, we suggested the Department of Conservation because we are asked to provide, you know, a suggestion. And if there's any agency that would be the closest to what 
we thought would work it would be the Department of Conservation, because indeed forestry used to be in the Department of Conservation way back in the day. And it has a broader mandate. It has a mandate that, that appreciates the need for this kind of this kind of conduct. And yes, there needs to be there there will need to be some sort of um uh I don't know what the right word is, but it, it's like um, like a cleaning of the wall. house, right, cleaning right. of the house, cleaning of the house, right. you know, uh, in a way that, that gives the agency has to have the authority to act and it has to use that authority. Um, I believe they have that now, but they won't use it. They won't use it. And so that, that, and that to me is a leadership void and it's a leadership void that has been endorsed and accepted all the way up the so-called chain of command within mm-hmm. the political world in Sacramento. So you, you've got to change that. And, 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 you know, now we're seeing now, you know, because of the fires this year and because of Ida and because of the flooding that's happening in New York today, you know, finally you're beginning to see more and more of, you know, this is climate change. This is what the climate crisis looks like. And if we don't act now, this is going to get oh so much worse. And, we can no longer just say we're going to let the market decide. I mean, that's been Cal Fire's thing all along when it comes to forest resource management. We'll just let the market decide and things will go up and down and it'll all work out. The economy can rule, you know, private interests will be, will take care of us. You know, it's this public private thing and they'll take care of it. And that, that won't work. It will not work. Mm-hmm. Well, especially because so. they have a history of not just letting the, the free market work, but subsidizing the timber industry and the and the logging in in all of these ways well i i mean look here's and this would be a good part of what i think would be helpful um first of all let's just be clear that when you when anybody submits a timber harvest plan they don't pay a penny not a penny you want to build a house you want to add an addition to your house whatever the case may be you pay a lot to your planning department to your building department whomever okay those industry folks pay zero, 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 zero. And not only that, when there was an effort to try and cover the cost of just looking at these plans, not only by the Department of Forestry, but by the Department of Fish and Wildlife, by the Water Quality Board, by the Division of Mines and Geology, uh, rather than get the legislature to require these plan submitters to pay something, what happened? A tax has been imposed on the lumber that you purchase at the lumber yard. Okay? So the public is now subsidizing the timber industry um, to get their approvals and to pay for the state services. So that's an imbalance. And it's an imbalance that can get fixed. It just has to get fixed. But they but again, without the will, there there doesn't seem to be a way. And until we can get leadership as opposed to politics. Um, we're at a real impasse and, and mm-hmm. it's an impasse that is going, that is costing us dearly and will inc- increase to cost. The, the cost will increase dramatically in a very short period of time. In a very short period of time. I'm talking, you know, less than a decade. Mm-hmm. It, uh, things are, things are very, very bad. Very bad. And, um, we have a duty. Not only to the people of the state of California, but frankly, to the, to the larger world to protect our forests. Cause temperate forests are one of the, one of the critical components. One of the critical components that we need for carbon sequestration and what they're, how they manage, put that in quotes, manage, um, an understanding of how, how logging, uh, operations are uh, affecting climate change and greenhouse gas emissions and car it, it's it's just it's ridiculous i do it, have it, that quote from um from the timber harvest plan global climate change and the variables that influence this change are subject to intensive scientific investigations and debate for now the consensus is that temperature within the earth's atmosphere is increasing although exactly how and to what extent human activity plays a role in global climate change appears to be unknown yeah, well, and this, here's the thing. This is an agency of the state of California that claims, the state of California claims to be a leader 
when it comes to climate change. And, and that's been the case ever since AB 32. So my question to the governor and to all of those people in the legislature is how the hell could that be a statement of a state agency in 2020? Who is accountable for that? Because from my perspective, if ever there is an indication that there is a problem, that is it. It's an ignorance, it's a willful ignorance, and it's a complete disregard for the reality of the 21st century. My guest is Sharon Duggan. She's an environmental attorney here in Northern California, and she has worked for almost four decades to... Uh, through the legal system to try to get California Department of Forestry to enforce the Forest Practices Act using every strategy that you can possibly think of. And now she is calling along with Richard Wilson and uh, Why Forests Matter, their organization, for a divorce between the firefighting and the forestry management side of CAL FIRE. Um, I'm Alicia Bales. I'm here live in the Ukiah studio. And Sharon, you bring up this word accountability, and I don't think people have any idea of how little accountability there is out in our forests. For instance, uh, foresters can write these plans. Cal Fire can say, oh, well, we're not. There's still debate about what's causing uh, climate change. And there's not really any functional way. Like if a forester writes a plan and claims that there's going to be no impacts to salmon or to soil or to water, who comes around afterwards and makes sure that there were no impacts? If they just go ahead and blast out the creek or um, if their plan is just absolutely devastating, they, there's no uh, penalty for that in the years to come, right? Well, I, I think, I mean, I think there's two fundamental things that, are, that exist within the, the scheme of the Forest Practice Act. And for again, for people who may have some experience with other kinds of projects or you know, whatever. I mean, if if um, Walmart wants to build a, a store, you know, the public can go and look at where they want to build, and they can they can look at all that, and they can see everything that's around it. With forestry, the public has no access to the private land, um, and so as a consequence, what's in the written document is all the public has to understand to try and understand what is being proposed um, and what might happen and this makes it extremely difficult when you have operators that may have you know a large area in a particular watershed and they're doing a lot of different operations you know different logging operations up and down the watershed it makes it very difficult to really get a handle on well, what has happened, what is being proposed, what might happen in the future. Um, and so that's key to this question of accountability because, again, it's my position, and I think it's borne out just by the records, that rarely, if ever, does the Department of Forestry these days, and now for many years, um, had the courage to deny a timber harvest plan um, or any of those other kinds of of plans that that go forward um and so all we have is what's been proposed and you know there may be some adjustments because they the agencies get to go out in the field and they can see that maybe things were not exactly as the plan had said but again the public has no way to test any of that to look at it to see if it's really true or not and we're completely reliant upon um the agency to give a fair accounting of what's being proposed. And once they've done that, they're invested. They're invested in their approval. Um, if they get sued, they're very invested in their approval. No one should ever misunderstand how difficult it is for any one group or various groups or individuals to take on the approval of any timber harvest plan. It's always a challenge. It's always a very it's extremely difficult because you have the power of the attorney general's office, you have an agency, you have the timber company and their experts, and you're in a court of law that generally bows to the interests of the administrative agencies. And so it is no small feat for anybody to try and overcome those approvals. And in either case, whether one goes to court or, or they just say, well, we're going to have to live with it, um, you never know what actually happens. Um, the burden on the public, for example, to have to follow up and to keep looking to see if anything happened, if any report has been filed, is incredibly difficult. 
Um, and the measure of monitoring that um, should happen is one that is not um, verifiable by anybody other than it's like the self-monitoring kind of thing. So, um, but it, I, I think it's fair to say that because generally the agency lets the plan submit or do what they want, um, things turn out just as the plan submitter wants them to. At least on the harvest side, right? Correct. Right. They're going to get right. their trees. They're going to sell their the the lumber, and they're going to get the money for it. Right. And and whether or not you know over time, whether or not some of these areas that have been um, logged and relogged and relogged and reharvested, um, whether they're going to continue to produce at the same level and are going to have the same kind of productive soils. I think scientifically that is probably not the case. Um, and so when they cut these trees smaller and smaller and then they say, well, you know, we're going to set this all up so we can have a nice even age forest where we can come in every 30 or 40 years, um, you know, that they're not doing us any favors in terms of providing those healthy forests that we believe um, the Forest Practice Act requires. Have you had any response from legislators or anyone in Sacramento who thinks that the Cal Fire divorce is a, is a promising proposal? Not that I'm aware of, no. No. I, I mean, you know, it, it's, it's really, I, I have to say, I, I, um, we have a political class, right? And their job, I think, is to maintain their job. And I don't mean that for any individual. I, I just think as a general rule. And so they're always, um, you know, hedging their bets about who they can accommodate. And um, when it comes to this issue, you know, they're not willing to take on the timber industry. Um, nor is and, and if you had an agency that was prepared to stand up for itself, it might be different. But we don't have that. You know, and, and basically now I think, you know, the people who are in charge of the Department of Forestry are the fire people. They're the, I mean, that's where the money is. That's where all the advancement is. That's where it all is. And so the resource management people, you know, I, I'm not saying that there's any individual that's not good or otherwise. I, I'm just saying that there is not a system of leadership that's inspired, that has a vision for what we need in the 21st century. You know, and, and clearly the past, as much as everyone thought that the 1973 Act would really take care of things, um, on the issue of forests, on the issue of trees and sustainability and providing forests, um, we've, the state of California has failed, in my opinion. I, you know, I, I just, and all you have to do is look at these log decks and see these little trees and right following the log trucks on the highways it's it is yeah, it's like mean, 30 trees on a truck so or 30 i guess they're 30 logs the same tree but yeah richard yeah. wilson when i talked to him he said um the the, the trees just there's, there's not a, a voice for the trees in this conversation the trees just don't have a voice well yeah uh, i mean <laughs> And the forest doesn't have a, a voice, you know. I, I mean, so you can have, I mean, I think that there are times when the Department of Fish and Wildlife goes out of its way to make sure the spotted owl is protected or the muralette, you know, or anadromous salmonids. And, um, but that forest as an ecosystem that is so critical to our planet, that, you know, I, I just, I really feel like we have, we've not... Um, we haven't paid attention you know we haven't we haven't paid attention and we've taken it for granted and now you know we can no longer do that um things are going to heat up um gratefully you know we haven't seen really bad big fires on the coast but that's not to say <laughs> i mean that's not to say they're not going to happen as things dry um, out, yep, and things get hot. Yeah, I mean, that's the feedback loop. You know, the, the hotter it gets, the drier it gets, the more that you expose the soils, the more that all, that's what, that's what encourages fire. It's what encourages disease. It's what encourages insects. 
you know, and, and you keep doing that and you drill down and you drill down. Um, and that's, and, and we, and, and so they no longer become the, the, you know, the sequestering capacity. They don't have the sequestering capacity. Uh, I mean, it, it, it is a, it's, it's a dynamic that happens. And, um, I don't, I don't think it's the case that they really have people in the department who really understand this. Um, they don't have right. people in the department who really understand the whole, you know, biological maturity of, you know, a forest and sustainability. I don't think that exists either. I, I, I mean, I'm sorry, but I don't think, I mean, they look at whatever the industry submits and they say that's okay. And those projections are, I mean, we saw that with the Headwaters case. You know, they have these crazy projections for what can happen 100 years from now. Well, you know what? It's not a 100-year time frame anymore. So we're on a much shorter leash than that. I think that's what's especially disturbing, among other things, about the quote in the, the Jackson State Timber Harvest Plan about uh, not not being quite sure about what's causing climate change because climate scientists are completely sure. They can pinpoint it quite exactly now, and they are telling us globally that forests are one of our only hopes that it's like the trees are absorbing that carbon and logging, industrial logging is contributing to releasing a massive amounts of carbon. And so it's canceling out the potential for carbon absorption, but also releasing the carbon that's already sequestered out there. They're not right. unclear about it at all. They're crystal clear about it. We've got to protect. I think they came up with this term, a proforestation, right? Where forests, exactly. you must allow forests to grow or we are not getting out of this climate crisis. And yet our agency in the state of California that's responsible for managing the forests is wishy-washy about the causes of climate change, it just makes you feel like, you know, we need an intervention here. Well, yeah, you know, and it, it's, um, I'm trying to find that, you know, the way to say that we need, we need attention to the reality of what's happening. And, you know, you, you, I, I saw a timber harvest plan recently where it was like, well, yeah, we're going to admit, but gee, we're going to create lumber and that's going to sequester carbon. There is not an equivalence, you know, um, between what you lose and the lumber that you created. It, it's, and that's scientific. Okay. Um, they say, well, you know, yeah, we're going to lose these trees that are bigger and their carbon sequestration, but we're going to have all these younger trees and they're going to take on, you know, carbon more quickly and that's going to be better. And that's also not equivalent. I mean, it's established that older trees do better at sequestering carbon over time. They just, they just do better. Um, so they, so there's these falsehoods that get perpetuated, um, over and over and over again and Cal Fire accepts them. Cal Fire just seems to accept them, which is why I don't understand why there has not been an investigation into this agency, particularly because of that statement in the Jackson State THP. That's their own timber harvest plan, and that's the position they're taking in 2020. Uh, I mean, it's astounding. There's, <laughs> it is that word accountability. It, it, uh, right. So, and it's uh, a timber harvest plan in publicly owned. Land. It's exactly. some of the publicly exactly. owned land that they manage. Our, that's our public land for which Cal Fire is claiming that, you know, climate change is a subject of controversy and hasn't been established, whether it's human caused. I mean, police. Well, and let's so. talk about, uh, this is Alicia Bales. I'm talking with Sharon Duggan, environmental attorney who used to be the lead uh, attorney for EPIC, the Environmental Protection Information Center, and has fought valiantly for almost 40 years through the courts to protect our forests and try to force the CDF, California Department of Forestry, to enforce the Forest Practices Act, um, which they seem to wiggle out of at every turn. Uh, but Let's talk about your work with our Children's Trust, because that brings it all down to what this is really about and what the stakes are and why forests do matter. And that is uh, the future faced by young people on this planet, but all life forms on this planet. Well, I, here's what I can say. You know, I helped create our for our Children's Trust in 2010, and you know, our our job is to support young people, um, particularly through legal action and community involvement, 
um, you know, to, to give them a voice um, because they, you know, as I think the former um, president of Ireland said, you know, their youth are entitled to have a voice. They're entitled to be at the table uh, about what's happening to them because they have to live with this all of their lives. Um, and so they're impacted much more seriously than we are. And from our perspective, um, they are entitled to a stable climate system. And that is a consequence of our Constitution. It's a consequence of the public trust doctrine. Um, and all youth around the world are entitled to that. And indeed, you know, at this point in time, you if you go, there's a Columbia University has the Sabine Center for Climate. And you can look there and you can see all the kinds of um, litigation that's going on, both in the United States and around the world. The number of human rights cases, um, the number of cases that are before the European Court of Human Rights, the number of cases in the UN. Um, children around the world are um, suffering mightily because of the climate crisis, which is a consequence of our conduct. And um, forests are just, you know, they're not just. They're, they're a, a critical component to all of this. Um, and, you know, I have to say, as someone who's 70 years old, I wish that 30 and 40 years ago I um, took more action to stop this, this um, trend of climate ignorance. You know, I, I really do. Um, I think that, you know, we have tried over the years to give attention and, and focus on the value of forests. Um, and sometimes we're listened to and other times we're not. Um, but we have to do this for young people. And any, I don't understand people who have children and grandchildren who do not appreciate this, you know, and who seem to think, I don't understand frankly, how Red Emerson is comfortable allowing the clear-cutting to go on um, when I'm sure he has children and grandchildren, if not great-grandchildren at this point. I, I don't understand what he thinks he's going to leave them because money will not take care of them. So that's, you know, in our Children's Trust, I mean, you know, we, we collaborate with folks around the world. You know, we're, I mean, that it, it's amazing what young people have had to suffer you know, one of our one of the plaintiffs in the federal case lives in Louisiana. We just went through the uh, hurricane. What's the you federal know? case? It's quite inspiring, I have to say. It's called Juliana versus the United States, and it's the case of twenty one young people from all over the country. We have people from you know we have a young Navajo person. We have a, a young the youngest who's now thirteen um, lives off of, uh, lives on a barrier reef island off the coast of Florida. He's experienced hurricanes. Um, people in all over the country, um, Alaska, uh, Hawaii, um, many of whom have experienced any number of different climate impacts directly now because of wildfires and flooding. And, um, and so they're suing the federal government under the U.S. Constitution and under the public trust doctrine that they um, be given a right to a, a safe and stable environment, the climate, that... Um, and to secure a scientifically based scientific um, recovery plan for climate, because the problem in the United States, and you know, I can just show you this. This is the, this is a new book. It's called "They Knew: The U.S. Federal Government's 50-Year Role in Causing the Climate Crisis" by Gusta James Gustaf Speth. Gus Speth is one of the experts in the Juliana case, and he's now he's MIT has published essentially his expert report. And what you learn in this that we knew was that, you know, way back in the 60s, way back in the 60s, our Congress knew we had an immediate emergency then on climate, and we did nothing. Instead, it's not just that we did nothing. We subsidized the fossil fuel industry, and we continue to do that. And so and that's what, you know, essentially that's what we're doing in California as long as we continue to allow Cal Fire to have its little mini resource management department. It's um, empire. Well, and, empire, you, and yeah. you draw the connections between the fossil fuel industry and the timber industry as well in terms of, you know, the nexus is in the carbon credits um, scheme. Right. And, and, you know, there's just a, there's just a report that came out 
um, that analyzes the whole carbon offset program that California has and how people have, you know, you know, Microsoft and any number of other big outfits, you know, have purchased carbon credits because of our forests in California. And of course, those are vastly overestimated in light of all the fire that's going on. We're, we're increasing our emissions right now in the state of California once again because of our forest fires. Um, so, I mean, we subsidize, we, as the government of the United States has subsidized fossil fuel, as has the state of California, um, and we subsidize the timber industry um, so that, you know, they get, they get their benefit and we lose. And it, it really is time for that to stop. And, and we think one way to make that stop is to just create a different agency that's going to be held accountable and it's going to hold the, the timber the private landowners accountable to make sure they manage their force consistent with and in compliance with our laws well sharon duggan i it, it's been a thrill to talk with you we could talk for hours more and i hope that we do um <laughs> thank you so much for for talking with me today well thank you very much i appreciate it and i i wish everyone well in these very difficult times. Where can people go to find out more about the Cal Fire divorce and why forests matter? Is there a website? I think it's why forests matter. I don't know what, if they just Google why forests matter, they will find, they will um, find you. The web, they will find the website. And, yeah. and I hope that, that and, they do because it's a and, fascinating proposal and it's well-researched and well-documented and very compelling. Thank you. All right, Sharon, we'll talk soon. Thanks so much. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. And I am Alicia Bales. I'm live in the Ukiah studio. Had the thrill of my life just getting to interview Sharon Duggan for an hour. Thank you all for listening. I'm going to continue with my series to talk with policymakers and leaders in forestry and climate. And I will be back. I think my next show is Byline Mendocino a week from tomorrow morning at nine o'clock. And I'm sure that we will be talking more about this. So thanks very much for listening. And stay tuned next for Democracy Now! This podcast was produced by KZYX-FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, local community radio for Mendocino County, California. If you enjoyed the program and you'd like to hear more, in Northern California, you can tune in anytime to KZYX at 90.7 FM in Philo, KZYZ at 91.5 FM in Willits and Ukiah, and 88.1 FM in Fort Bragg. If you're listening to this podcast from further away, we also stream live 24 hours a day at kzyx.org, where you can hear our eclectic range of locally produced music, public affairs, and news, along with daily state and national news programs and breaking news. You can also find out how to become a member to keep KZYX on the air. Thank you for listening. Well, tell me what...